a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. It is so nice to have you with us. By the way, lines are open at 801-331-8113. Well, here we are. It's the day before the big event. Everybody's holding their breath, unsure of what's going to happen. I haven't been to the store lately either, so I can't tell you if the uh, if the run on toilet paper has begun. <laughs> Actually, I talked to one of my uh, coworkers uh, back when was it Saturday. He mentioned his wife had been to Costco, and uh, yeah, he said the the run on toilet paper that's a real thing. People were uh, stocking up. Uh, whatever Costco she had been to was out at that time. Not trying to start panic or anything. I'm just saying, what a weird time. We are in the weirdest possible place. And here's the part that gets me. If I could just share a, a little personal anecdote with you. Um, so as, as I've explained to my audience, uh, I, I acqu- became acquainted. I, I met my, my birth father for the very first time this year. Now, I haven't met him in person, but uh, he and I became connected through a DNA test through 23andMe. And uh, every Sunday, I have a chance to sit down and visit with him. And, and we'll spend about an hour Skyping, talking back and forth. And I, I really enjoy this. I, I have learned a lot. And, and here's what makes it enjoyable for me. Politics has absolutely nothing to do with the connection that we've made. And, and why is this important? Well, I'll tell you. Because uh, I'm pretty sure politically, he and I are about as polar opposite <laughs> as, as you'd be likely to find. And I'm just speaking for myself here. I'll be damned if I'm going to throw away a perfectly good relationship based on what politically is supposed to happen or what I think is supposed to happen. And I suspect he probably feels the same way, too, because neither one of us have, have really pressed each other. I mean, we've laughed a little bit about, wow, you know, I know he's I know he's listened to to the podcast or at least he has has seen enough of uh, my my writing or of, of my my broadcast that, that he understands. Yeah. Yep. I'm I'm out there. <laughs> I'm happy with where I am, but but I am out there, not just to him, but I'm sure to a lot of people. My point is. It's not a thing because we choose not to make it a thing. Looking at a headline right now from a Reuters article. This is the headline. You are no longer my mother. How the election is dividing American families. And here's this. This is the part that makes me sad. I'm absolutely 100% confident within the sound of my voice. Our people. Maybe a handful, maybe dozens, maybe there's tons of them who have cut someone out of their life or been cut out of someone else's life because of some political consideration. You wore your MAGA hat to, you know, to Sunday dinner when you shouldn't have, or you simply told them, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. The article here from Reuters, this is uh, out of Los Angeles, 
talks about uh, lifelong Democrat Mayra Gomez told her 21-year-old son five months ago she was going to vote for Donald Trump in Tuesday's presidential election. He cut her out of his life. She said he specifically told her, you are no longer my mother because you are voting for Trump. In fact, their their last conversation was so bitter, she's not sure they can reconcile even if Trump were to lose his reelection bid. Gomez says the damage is done. In people's minds, Trump is a monster. It's sad. There are people not talking to me anymore, and I'm not sure that will change. Okay, this is one example. But you know that to varying degrees, this is taking place on a much larger scale. And if that's what drives your boat, okay, I'm not going to try and talk you out of it. Some people find purpose. Some people actually define themselves by who or what they're against. And I recognize this because that used to be me. I used to be enemy driven. I used to be driven by what I feared and what I hated. And you can build a very successful following in talk radio on that premise alone. Point people towards that demon. That's your demon. Go wrestle with it. And they'll love you for it. Now, since I've come to a belief that there's a better way uh, to discuss things and to to promote uh, what I consider to be, um, you know, sound principles, things that that actually matter and will matter regardless of, of who's in power, but it took a while to get to that to that point where I was was willing to to turn loose of that political identity and stop putting so much emphasis on it. And so this is my plea to you. And you don't have to do it. I'm not going to I won't take offense if you choose to go a totally different direction, but consider the things in your life that are actually going to matter. And this is kind of a scary thought for some, but I want you to imagine that uh, that you have the ability to walk into your funeral unseen. You're just a you're a fly on the wall, so to speak. You're you're a disembodied spirit, but you hear and you see what's going on. What what are people talking about? How are they remembering you? The person gets up to read your eulogy. What will they say about you as they celebrate your life and what it was that made your life yours are you hoping that they'll you know have you know trump stickers all over your casket are you hoping that everybody shows up with a maga hat would you want to be defined by the political stance you took for a particular election or two or three or would there be other things other considerations that would actually matter more deeply. I can't answer for you. This is one you get to call for yourself. But I will tell you that it's a very thought-provoking exercise. If you ever want to really have a little self-evaluation, just kind of see, where do I stand in life? What is most important to me? That's one of the things you can do. Sit down and pretend that you, you got the opportunity to write your own eulogy. How would you want to be remembered? It's rare to find anybody who dwells on the superficial parts of their life as, yeah, this is, he drove a lifted Toyota Tundra with great big 35-inch tires, you know. (laughs) Nope. I mean, that's great if you do. It doesn't make you less of a person. I'm just saying that's not what defines you, though. 
What people are going to remember is how you impacted their lives. And in my mind, if, if we're, we're cutting people out of our lives because of a perceived political difference, I think the day may come when we will actually look back on that as one of the most foolish, short-sighted decisions that we've ever made. We traded diamonds for stones, if I could borrow a phrase from Richard Paul Evans' book, The, uh, the Christmas Box Miracle. And what's worse is we picked up those stones and threw them at people we were supposed to love or at least uh, befriend. You know that Paul Rosenberg is one of my favorite writers. I love his comments on the passing scene. He's got a great essay that came out today. This, uh, this actually landed in my inbox earlier this morning. What to remember while holding your breath. And this is a pretty big picture thing, so I'll, I'll just share a couple excerpts with you. He says, much of the world is holding its breath, waiting for the outcome of tomorrow's U.S. election. And even though, he says, I see politics as the sad relic of the Bronze Age, this election may have some serious consequences. And he says, so I think it's worth a few brief comments. He says, my first concern is simply that all my readers stay safe. In all likelihood, there will be violence following this one. If Mr. Trump wins, the street troops of the left will do what they've been doing this year, and perhaps more so. They are, after all, facing a dead end. If their perennial strongholds, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California, and others, aren't massively bailed out and fast, their political machines will collapse. He says, I don't expect very much violence immediately following a Biden win. Granted, there could be some. There are always a few actual crazies around. He says, and I do tend to be optimistic, but... I've never known disappointed conservatives to riot, and the militia guys tend to head to a sheriff's department seeking to be deputized. The threat of violence from the right would be if the blues are seen to steal the election. And he says, if that happens clearly enough, all bets are off. He says, my preference, of course, would be for good people to drop out of the status quo and use their energies building something better and less corruptible. All that said, though, he says caution is warranted. All right, let's take this quick break. We'll come back. Some more thoughts from Paul Rosenberg. What to remember while holding your breath. Again, I'm just going to plead. Don't cut off family members for some short-term perceived political gain. It will not be worth it in the long run. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. Seriously, if you'd like to weigh in, I would love to hear from you. I'm just begging you, please consider a little further than just, you know, the election tomorrow. And, and think long term before you start cutting people out of your life. I'm sharing with you this commentary from Paul Rosenberg, What to Remember While Holding Your Breath. One of the things he talks about here is the people who really matter. So as much as he's concerned, yes, there could be some violence, uh, whatever that likelihood is, you know, stay safe. But he says, now with that note behind us, he says, I'd like you to remember that the people who have the ultimate say in what happens in the world are the productives. These are the people who build, grow, 
repair, and invent everything. The political class merely takes what they produce, lives high off of it, and plays at being powerful with it. The producers of the world have been frightened, seduced, deceived, and bullied into compliance with the political class. But he says it needn't be that way. And in fact, will not always be that way. Furthermore, he says these organizations aren't nearly as omnipotent as people believe. The current propaganda stream, interestingly enough, features the elites of the European Union bandying about plans for a great reset and a fourth industrial revolution. And he says by doing this, they're admitting that their existing system will not last. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to sell people on something new. So whatever comes out of this election, Paul Rosenberg says our goal is to make the producers of the world understand that they don't need the political class. He says we can arrange our own affairs just fine without their glorious wisdom. (laughs) We can also toughen up emotionally and cease being terrified by every imaginary fear that comes down the road. So what to remember? He says that's really about all I have to say today. I'll conclude with a quote from Buckminster Fuller. Please try to keep this passage in mind as the breathless election results come in, followed by the highly emotional commentary, because this is how things really are. Quote, if you take all the machinery in the world and dump it in the ocean, within months, more than half of all humanity will die. And within another six months, they'd be almost all gone. If you took all the politicians in the world, put them in a rocket and sent them to the moon. Everyone would get along Fine. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg says, stay safe. And remember, politics is all about subverting you emotionally and then reaping your production. The rest are details. I think he's got a point here. And I'm just going to suggest that, look, the, the, the possibility for disappointment is high and that's even for me and i keep myself pretty politically aloof right i'm not i don't feel emotionally joined at the hip to any particular candidates i look at what's i look at what's out there to choose from and it's pretty clear yeah there are some folks who are very dedicated to uh, getting their hands on power and and pretty much are threatening you know if you don't give me what i want then i will continue to find ways to hurt you And if you do give me what I want, then I have your permission to hurt you. Well, that sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Having said that, though, I still believe there are very productive areas where you and I could be applying ourselves, and that's what I intend to do. I've addressed those things that are within my power to uh, to prepare and to, to nullify whatever negative impact those power seekers may have. And I'm going to continue to speak the truth and to encourage others to speak the truth and to help build platforms from which people can speak the truth because that's a much better thing than simply worrying about, well, what are they going to do next? It'll be challenging. It might be dangerous. I don't know. We do live in interesting times. But I thank my maker every day that I have the privilege of being a part of these times and, and more importantly, of having a direction and a purpose to which I can live up, live up to, and, and, and to which I can, can apply myself every single day. 
If you feel like you're, you know, spinning your wheels in fear, can I suggest maybe this is something you ought to be considering for yourself? You weren't put on this earth to, to just live in fear. You've heard me say before, you know, the, the, the some purpose of life is not to avoid catching a virus. I think we're put on this earth to make a difference. And in order to do that, we are going to have to assume certain risks, some of them pertaining to coronavirus, some of them pertaining to, you know, politically incorrect ideas or truths. Some of them standing for freedom, even when it's very painful and difficult. I think it's timely that uh, my Facebook feed has been uh, showing me memories from three years ago. Three years ago, I was on my way back from Las Vegas from covering the trial of uh, Cliven Bundy, uh, Ryan Payne, Ryan Bundy, and Ammon Bundy. They just finished seating the jury. It had been, uh, you know, a very long week, kind of an intense thing to go and cover. But I will cherish the fact that I got to have a front row seat and see firsthand what it's like to be around individuals who care more about what is right than they do about their own welfare, their own self-preservation. And what was even more amazing was to watch them prevail against all odds. Fascinating stuff. To the phone, caller, welcome to the show. Hi, is that me? That's you. Go right ahead. So, yeah, I've got great news. If you're a Biden fan or a Trump fan, it doesn't matter who you vote for. You're going to get the exact same thing for the next four years. You're going to get a continuation of foreign wars of aggression that we shouldn't be involved in. The border is going to be kept wide open. Uh, Hillary Clinton, George Soros, uh, criminals like that, they won't be touched. Uh, you'll, get, you'll get an increase in the debt on an uh, exponential basis. You name it, you're going to get it, and it doesn't matter which of the two major party candidates you vote for. And if you have any doubts about that, Brian, just look at the last three and three-quarters years, almost four years, and tell me if I'm wrong. No, you are speaking hard truth, but you are speaking truth. But I got, I've got some good news for those who are conscientious voters, Brian, and you, uh, you either back me up or correct me if I'm wrong. There's a man by the name of Don Blankenship. He's running under the Constitution Party banner. And I've checked him out, and the guy checks out. Uh, he's pretty good. He's all-American. He's constitutional. And, you know, you never know what a candidate's going to do until they get in, into office. Obviously, he's not going to get into office. But at least you can sleep with a clear conscience by voting for the man. Yep. Nobody can accuse you of, of not voting your conscience. No, look, yeah, what you've said here, I'm sure, for some people is, is sounding like nails on chalkboard, but I think you're right. And, and not, just, not just this election, but look back, look back at any election in your lifetime. Has there ever been a time where the power of government hasn't increased at a cost of your personal liberty? Um, not in my lifetime. I'm uh, 54 years old. I'm, well, 53. Um, but here's the thing. People are getting upset. I mean, my neighbor had his Trump sign ripped down. Uh, we had a lot of shenanigans in our neighborhood, but I don't know what people are so upset about. Trump is doing exactly what Hillary Clinton would have been doing, and, and if Biden gets in, Biden's going to do exactly what Trump would have done for the next four years. It doesn't matter, Brian. And these are these are not minor issues. These are existential issues. These are issues that really have an impact. I mean, the minor issues where he calls the media a bunch of crooks, and where he calls Hillary, um, crooked Hillary or whatever, 
I mean, those don't affect your or my life. But, you know, whether I owe, right now it's about $68,000 per every man, woman, and child of debt that we owe. I mean, that does impact my life. And we seem to have ignored those existential issues. And we'll pay for it. And it's like going to a basketball game. You know, I'll give you one more analogy. I know you've given me a lot of time, Brian. The the music's playing here, so if you can hang on through the break, I'll pick up just the other side of news, okay? Great. Okay, stay with me. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got Chris on the line with me. We uh, came up on the break a little bit too fast. Chris, you had an analogy that you were sharing with us uh, regarding voting your conscience. And i got to tell you, you're a brave man for speaking up as you are because I know the election fervor is thicker this year than I've ever seen it in my life. But I, I, don't, uh, I don't doubt for a second that there's, there's truth and there's sincerity in what you're saying. Uh, yeah, so my um, epiphany came in the 2000 election. I actually voted for George W. Bush. And I was ecstatic. I thought, this guy's going to win. He's going to be our next Ronald Reagan. He's going to show the world what happens when you lower taxes. It's going to stimulate the economy. We're going to have the strongest economy in history, et cetera, et cetera. And what really opened my eyes, Brian, I hope I, I don't want to be too long-winded here. But what happened is, is a lot of people think that George W. Bush led the greatest tax cut in the history of this nation. What happened is he actually increased taxes. And let me explain why. And this is, this is where I woke up. He, he uh, assisted with Congress in cutting taxes, but they didn't cut expenditures. So what that did is that, that created a liability for which we have to pay um, interest. And that interest represents what I would consider a tax increase. Correct me if I'm wrong. So in essence, in the long term, whenever you cut taxes and you don't cut spending, you, you affect a tax increase. And from that point forward, I realized the Democrats and Republicans are no different. Just the, their means of, of, you know, creating debt, creating bondage, creating obligations that are extra constitutional are different. So I haven't voted on the national level for a Republican since that time. And I always vote third party. And I base my decisions, Brian, on three criteria, and these are scriptural, and I don't want to wax too scripturally because a lot of people, you know, that turns a lot of people off. But I will say this. An individual has to be either, has to be both, all three of these, has to be wise, good, and honest. And if that individual does not satisfy all three of those criteria, I do not vote for that individual because I believe if you do, that that individual is either not... doesn't understand his constitutional oath that he's about to, or she's about to take, or they're just they just want to go along to get along, which in my book is evil, because once you go along to get along and you know in the back of your mind that you are not going to do right by the American people, and every time we go outside of the Constitution, we do not do right by the American people. You should know, and if you don't, 
well, that disqualifies you because if a simple-minded window washer in Springville, Utah, knows it, then you, uh, an aspiring leader of our country, should. So I've well gone on long enough. What do you think okay. about that? Chris, thank you. I, I appreciate you, uh, I appreciate your principled plea, and uh, I'm not going to tell you the masses are going to embrace it. They usually don't, but I'm sure there's somebody who heard that who went, yep, that's what I've been thinking. So thank you. Can, can, can I tell you why the masses, and I know I've gone on long enough, let me, about 12 years, I'm a BYU fan, about well, 20 years ago there was a dirty player for, on the BYU basketball team, and every time we, the, the team would play, in um, visiting arenas, every time this guy would do something that was under under the belt, people would boo him. But when he came back home and he did something, you know, for BYU, it would be dead silence. They wouldn't oppose him because, you know, he may be a dirty player, but he's on our team, so we've got to protect him. Mm. I don't believe that. Yeah, it's not consistent. Anyway, Okay. It's not consistent. Chris, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate it. 801-331-8113. I want to follow up what Chris has said here with a question for you, too. And that is, why are you voting tomorrow? Now, I'm sure there are some who will say, well, Brian, I'm voting tomorrow because I'm voting for freedom. I'm voting for my liberty. I'm, I'm you know, voting to make sure that I get my freedom. And I saw this comment earlier today, and I thought this was a really... Good reminder. If you think you're voting for freedom tomorrow, just remember you do not inherit your freedom from government. Government is an institution put in place by man. It has nothing to give. Its existence is only possible by taking. Our freedom and our liberty are inherent because they come from our Creator. They're a part of our existence. So men didn't vote themselves freedom from a fictitious authority known as the crown back in the day. What they did was they declared ownership of what was already theirs. They claimed, used, and defended their inalienable rights. Can you see the difference? Do do you recognize the difference between going to a politician or a particular candidate and saying, please, may I be free? Versus... I am free, and I will be free, no matter what you think you're going to do. That also underscores what Chris was talking about, too, about good, honest, and wise individuals in office. But just keep in mind, your vote is not for your freedom. Your freedom is yours. And you're not going to get permission from whomever is in power to claim that freedom. You have to claim it. That's what free people do. Just don't forget that. I know how radical that sounds, <laughs> but it's still the truth. Caller, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian, for taking my call. Is this me? Yeah, you're on. It is. Okay. <clears throat> you know, I can really appreciate Chris's idealism. And I used to be an idealist. It's Idealist. Well, I I still am. You know, back with Ross Perot, well, I don't have time to go there. R- really what I want to say is there's no question that this country has been heading to socialism, big government, and continual loss of freedom. So, you know, except for rhino Republicans, if we can get a Republican House, Senate, and President Trump, I think things will slow down. And... and 
you know, I, I don't see turning it around and totally going back to the founding fathers as possible, unless people really wake up, you know, because this this government that's been given to us at great cost was so different people can live together. You know, kings and tyrants fighting each other, and even the, the Protestant movement, all the religions were fighting and killing each other. You know, and to live together without fighting and killing each other, that, I mean, really it comes down to who's going to save me? What can, you know, who can I turn to? Educators, politicians, pseudoscience, fake religions. You know, really, it comes down to truth, myself, and family and true friends. You know, and the thing I want to say, you know, here is um, the government is not going to save us. No, it's I not. Mean, of course. It's not. Know, of course. No. You know, of course, things things don't seem like they're changing. You know, because we have a bad template, and I don't think I've got time to get into it. But, you know, basically what it is is anarchy is on one side, no government. Everybody just fending for themselves like the cowboy days, or even worse than the cowboy days, you know, out in the Wild West. You know, we, we need law and order. But the trouble is, on the other side of anarchy... We have either big government, total government, all power. But, you know, if we can live in the middle between anarchy, halfway between anarchy and dictatorship, then we can live our lives in peace. But people don't know how to identify who are the anarchists and who are the, the dictators. They, they don't have the proper template, and I don't have to go into it. So they don't know how to identify let the anarchists and the dicted out that keep our government in the middle so we can live out our lives in peace. I can tell you this, Ray, the, the people who are most anxious to see violence, and I think, you know, it's, it's pretty safe to say, it's the far, far left anarchists and communists that are, that are pushing for that violence. Those are the people who are serving the, the unelected powers that be, the ones who want to you know, pull the, the strings from behind the scenes who, who don't really have to face the public. I understand that sounds conspiratorial, but the, the deep state that remains, regardless of who's in power, whether it's Democrats or Republicans that control Congress or control the White House, there is an unelected bureaucracy that nonetheless stays in power, feeds off the people and continues to uh, to control them as best it can. And any acts of violence are going to play into the hands of those uh, who are seeking that control. we got to be smarter than this. And, and I really believe part of this is that, uh, yes, the, the biggest problems we have seem to come to us in, in a political package. I don't think we can politic our way out of the mess that we're in. But that doesn't mean that our hands are tied and there's just nothing we can do. There's a lot we can do. We just have to do it outside of politics, and that's where people struggle to see a way. But it's there. Honestly, it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Go to Facebook. That's where you'll find their uh, Facebook page. And you can get regular updates complete with pictures of whatever has come into stock. Sometimes it's fresh produce. Sometimes it's bags of rice. Oftentimes, pallets of frozen meats. Oh, man. My son uh, picked up a beautiful brisket the other day. We're going to be smoking that uh, probably day after tomorrow. Thanks to Nikki's, this is this is how I can support what uh, would otherwise be a, a rather expensive barbecue habit. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, they can help you stretch your grocery dollar as well. And if you're in the mood for stocking up, it's a great place to go to. You'll find a lot of things that uh, could go a long way if you're trying to put aside some food on a budget. They accept all major credit cards. They accept EBT. Everything comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. The best way to find them is go to Facebook. Nikki's N-I-C-K-E-Y-S, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. couple quick things I want to touch on here. Uh, this hour just zooms by so quickly. Um, Paul Rosenberg, I mentioned him earlier. I'm going to include a link to uh, one of his uh, latest essays, uh, Taking on Fallacies. He is, uh, he's doing a marvelous job of helping people uh, develop their critical thinking skills. And the, this past week, he tackled the fallacy of nirvana. The perfect solution fallacy. It's very worth your while to take a look at this because it applies to so many areas in which people will try to persuade you, hey, I need your support. And it could be political. It could be in in some other arena. But once you learn to recognize that nirvana fallacy, you will find yourself much more difficult to manipulate. Well worth your while. Find it in the show notes, thebrianheidshow.com. There was also this uh, great article from Michael Roseff. This is from uh, lourockwell.com. Why herd immunity is far superior to lockdowns? Because right now, the push for more and greater lockdowns is intensifying. Europe right now, I mean, you're seeing literal riots in, in Spain over the government trying to shut everything down. And people are saying, enough. We're not going to play this. So why is herd immunity the better way to go than lockdowns? Michael Rosef says, well, here's a first stab at explaining why the Swedish herd immunity approach has worked out better than the lockdown approach. He says, if this is understood, then the people advocating lockdowns cannot defend their approach. It means putting a country through more lockdowns is the wrong thing to do. The explanation here is not the harm caused by lockdowns per se, in causing depression, unemployment, suicides, and related problems, those effects are not being considered here. They add significantly to the overall argument, but they are not the substance of the reasoning that follows. And he says it is this reasoning that appears to be absent from public discussion at this time. The goal of this blog is to persuade that herd immunity, or the herd immunity approach, makes a great deal of sense, but the lockdown approach does not. So in this context of herd immunity versus lockdown, success in defending against a contagious disease means fewer people having to be hospitalized and fewer people dying. This success occurs when fewer vulnerable people contract the disease. The population as a whole has vulnerable people, which in this case means older people with comorbidities, mainly people of age 80 or older 
but also the age bracket 70 to 80 cannot be ignored or younger people who have serious comorbidities. The difference between herd immunity and lockdowns is in the exposure that the vulnerable have to the invulnerable people who catch the disease but survive it handily. He says the invulnerable people can pass on the disease by contagion during its earlier stages of attack on them and while they are fighting it off and recovering. After recovery, their contagion effect goes way down. They've battled the bug and it's eliminated from their bodies. At that point, they don't or can't pass it on to the vulnerable. They're not contagious. The herd immunity stage is their strategy, rather, is to get the invulnerable people in and through the contagious stage as quickly as possible so they can no longer pass it on to the vulnerable elderly people. So herd immunity is mainly a matter of the young and healthy getting the bug and whipping it so they cannot give it to the elderly and less healthy. I mean, this this makes sense, right? The older people must come into contact with younger people, even with lockdowns. Michael Rosef says this is a necessity. The idea of herd immunity is that this contact be with younger people who've beaten the bug by their immune responses so that they're no longer able to spread it. Its contagious property is nil from them as a source. Everything the older people need cannot be delivered to the older by walling them off in their homes or nursing homes or whatever. In general, the elderly interact with the younger people for all sorts of services. Suppose something needs to be repaired inside the home, and there are many such things like a gas furnace or a dead car battery or electric circuit, water heater, a sump pump, refrigerator, etc. Then they'll be dealing with younger people coming into their homes. He says the elderly need to shop for food, and every such interaction brings them into contact with younger people in stores, be they the help or other customers. If they eat out, again, they have to interact. So if they need something that's sold in a hardware store or any number of other kinds of stores, they interact with younger people. To get some services, they must present themselves at offices of doctors. What Michael Rosef is saying here is that all these types of interactions will be far safer once these younger people have achieved herd immunity, which for the latter younger group has relatively low risk in the present case of COVID. But the same considerations apply to the older people within this relatively invulnerable group. That would be the people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who have somewhat elevated risk But if the younger people with whom they interact have already been exposed and survived, then they too will be safer in dealing with them because the contagion has been diminished greatly. He says with the herd immunity approach in a rather short period of time, say two weeks, that the contagion spreads among the younger, the elderly can avoid contacts. After that, there's much less chance of the elderly catching the disease from their contacts with the younger And such contacts are unavoidable because lockdowns can't go on indefinitely. In the lockdown approach, the spread of the disease is slowed down among the invulnerable. But this means that as time passes and the older people necessarily have contacts with younger people, they are more likely to come into contact with younger people who have not yet gotten and beaten the disease. This means there is a greater chance with lockdowns of a vulnerable person coming into contact with a contagious younger younger person. That means a greater risk of catching the disease, being hospitalized, and dying. The more non-contagious people there are in the population, the lower the chance of vulnerable people meeting contagious people. Recall that meetings of old and young cannot be avoided in the nature of how exchange economies work.
I think this makes sense. Older people depend heavily on younger people. Lower chances of vulnerable older people interacting with younger contagious people is precisely why herd immunity works. Locking everyone up for weeks and weeks and weeks accomplishes nothing but spreading out in time and place the presence of contagious people. This is why lockdowns fail and why herd immunity succeeds. Now, Michael Rosef points out many states in America have managed or graduated lockdown strategies. They look for hot spots where COVID cases are appearing, and they try to stem them by locking down specific areas or places. This is exactly the wrong thing to do if herd immunity is superior to lockdowns for the reasons cited. The main reason being that herd immunity lowers the chance that a vulnerable member of the population comes into contact with an invulnerable younger person who happens to be in the contagious stage. The idea is to get these younger people into and through the contagious stage as quickly as possible, not to prolong the uncertainty by selective lockdowns. Most cases, he says, are not bad if they are among the invulnerable. They're troublesome when they are among the vulnerable. Indeed, the more cases there are among the sturdy and young invulnerable because they have strong immune systems, the faster that herd immunity is approached and the less the chance of the vulnerable being infected at some point in the future by interacting with a contagious case. Now, he finishes it up here by saying, if for whatever reason, real or specious, there arises a second wave or third wave or fears of such things, their presence confirms that failure of lockdowns and further lockdowns will be completely uncalled for. They'll just make the situation worse. They won't remedy it to any degree. So the correct thing to do is end the lockdown mentality and method with the understanding that herd immunity is the sensible way to go. Okay, I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the radio. But what he says here does make a certain degree of sense. And if nothing else, we should be able to see that, you know, despite all the mask mandates and the social distancing directives and lockdowns and so forth... We have not been able to wave our PhDs in the face of this virus and intimidate it into submission. It's going to have to be dealt with. And I think herd immunity makes a whole lot more sense than basically becoming the world's biggest open-air prison camp. This is The Brian Hyde Show.